welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Alexander Wendt, professor of international security and political science at Ohio State University. In 2015, he published a bold new treatment called Quantum Mind and Social Science, Unifying Physical and Social Ontology. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. I imagine many of our listeners are familiar with your work, but for those that aren't, I'd like to open by just mentioning your first book, Social Theory of International Politics, which had an enormous impact on the field and laid out your constructivist approach to international politics. Could you take a bit of time at the beginning here and explain what constructivism is and what your main contributions were in that book? Well, um, the simple answer, I think, is that constructivism is the idea that social reality is socially constructed, which is kind of trivially true. Um, and But I think part of the context of that is that I was writing in the context of a literature that seemed to suggest that the character of international politics was fixed by distribution of power or whatever it might be, or, um, or, or certain kinds of uncertainty and so on. And, and I and a lot of other people began to make the argument that actually, well, no, the character of the system, the character of anarchy depends hugely on what states do, what their beliefs are, what their interests are, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so instead of anarchy inevitably forcing states into conflict and competition, in fact, anarchy is, quote unquote, what states make of it. Um, and that was kind of the, the gist of the, the contingency of anarchy was kind of part of the point. The other part of the point, I think, of constructivism is to emphasize ideas and the role of ideas um, in international politics and and not just at the, at the margins, but actually ideas are centrally basically what make international politics, international politics in the first place, because states are ideas themselves. Um, and then my particular spin on the ideas issue and what was more developed in the book um, is that these ideas are holistic. And so the, the, the continuity between the first book and the quantum book really is holism and the idea that everything is connected to everything else. Um, but not all constructivists would endorse that latter view, I think. One way to maybe describe that approach that you took in your first book is that it was a kind of pulling back. You know, the, the literature was characterized, as you put it, by uh, kind of, you know, to accept realism, you've got to first accept certain presumptions about what is analytically relevant. Um, and you kind of pull back and sort of say that um, human ideas and concepts themselves are the thing to be studied if we're going to talk properly about international politics. And in your newer book, Quantum Mind and Social Science, you're kind of pulling back or widening the aperture even more in, in, a, in a radical way to try to understand social phenomena based on the nature of reality. Uh, now, there isn't a consensus on what the nature of reality is, but what you're doing in this book is uh, taking seriously the ontological implications of the very counterintuitive manner in which matter at the smallest and most fundamental level of particles seems to behave. And you argue that there's a case for a particular interpretation of quantum mechanics and quantum theory. And then you make that uh, case for how this ontology, if it turns out to be correct, should influence the way we approach social science and social problems in general. There's a ton to unpack in that. So let's just start with uh, talking about quantum mechanics. Explain for people, if you can, the weirdness of the quantum world. What do we observe in quantum experiments 
that seems to contradict the way we understand the macro world? Well, that's a hard question. And I think a physicist will tell you it's not, we don't know exactly what we, what we see, but uh, we know what we think we see. I think part of what we see in quantum experiments is entanglement, which is many people have argued the central concept of quantum theory and an entanglement. The basic idea is that you can't describe one particle without describing its relationship to another particle and that the two are entangled and that's part of what makes them particles in the first place. And that has an important implication that particles are not completely separate. There's a holistic connection between them. Um, and that entanglement also allows for what's usually called non-local causation or what used to be called action at the distance, um, which is the idea that if you change the, if you measure one particle over here, change the spin, you automatically know a change has happened on the other particle that it's entangled with. Um, and that doesn't involve any kind of transfer of energy or information or anything like that. It's happening non-locally, simultaneously. So that's very mysterious. Um, I think it's actually much more mysterious in physics than it is in social life. I think in social life, actually, quantum mechanics is not counterintuitive at all. It's actually, I think, quite, quite intuitive. And the classical view, I would say, is far more counterintuitive in the social sciences. But in the natural sciences, the reverse is true. And so quantum theory has a deep mystery attached to it there. Okay, so um, in many of these experiments, what we find is uh, what's commonly called the measurement problem. And I wonder if you can first explain what that is and then talk about what that might mean for the mind-body problem or uh, our, our conscious experience. Um, what are the implications there? Well, that's that's huge. Um, I guess the measurement problem is simply that unlike in the classical world where you can assume that measurements don't interfere with the thing that you're trying to measure, and so what you're measuring is something out there in the world that's stable and has well-defined properties, in the quantum context, the stuff you're measuring is usually so small that the measurement itself interferes with the character of what it is that you're measuring, um, and it changes it in some way. Now, there's a lot of disagreement about how that change comes about and everything else, and we don't have to go down those different interpretations necessarily, but, um, but there is the idea that the, the framing of the experiment, the context of the experiment, will actually produce different results depending on how it's framed. Um, and so the upshot is, of the measurement problem is that there is really no stable, well-defined reality that you're trying to measure. What happens is you measure something and you get, it elicits a response that if you measured it differently, you would get a different kind of response. Um, so it challenges the notion of objectivity. Um, it challenges the notion of realism. There's a real world out there. Um, but I think in social life, it's actually very intuitive. If you think about what um, you know, public opinion surveys, all, it's all about how the questions are written, how the questions are framed. And if you frame the questions one way, you get one kind of answer, and you frame it a different way, you get different kinds of answers. I think that problem is very familiar to social scientists. And in my view, that's actually a quantum, a manifestation of quantum phenomena in the social world at a, at a macroscopic level. One way that you put it in the book, you say measurement is somehow intrinsically connected to a change in our description of the electron. The implication is that in the quantum world, observer and observed form a single system rather than being separable as in the classical world. Maybe this is a useful opportunity for us to define this notion of the collapse of the wave function. Mm -hmm. uh, what's going on is that there's a, a wave uh, that when observed or measured by a device 
collapses into a particle. Mm -hmm. Talk about that collapse of the wave function and its importance in your in your theory. Well, the wave function is, as I understand it, is just a description of the different probabilities that if you measure things, the particle, the probability that it will land in one spot on the screen versus someplace else on the screen and, and versus all the other possibilities. And so the wave function really is describing the potential, the potentialities of the particle, that it could be here, it could be there, it could be up here, it could be down here, but it's all about potentiality. And when the measurement actually happens, that way, all those potentialities collapse to zero, except for the one that gets actualized. And so the particle ends up on the screen somewhere with probability X or whatever, um, and then everything else reverts to zero. So it goes from a world of potentialities to a world of actuality at least for a brief moment, and then you're back in the world of potentiality again. So it's, I guess that would be where I would start anyway. You ultimately try to integrate these findings from quantum physics into brain functions and human experience at the individual level. But before we get to that, let's first tackle the fact that not all physicists conclude that the weirdness that characterizes the quantum world extends to the macro world. Right. The whole issue in physics since the quantum revolution is that we don't have a clear way to unify the classical understanding of physics with the nature of the world as it seems to operate at the quantum level. So why should we think that uh, these quantum insights percolate upwards, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, to the physical world that we experience? Well, that's a crucially important question, whether or not these things can percolate upward to the macro scale. If, and this is what's called the problem of decoherence, if the wave functions seem to fall apart or kind of wash out as soon as you get above the molecular level. And that would suggest that, well, there should be no quantum effects at the human level at all. Um, and that might be the case, we don't yet know. Um, but I would say arguing in favor of an alternative interpretation is first of all, we have no idea what consciousness is doing at the quantum level, and we don't have an understanding of what consciousness is doing at the macro level either. And in my view, actually, consciousness is a quantum phenomenon and is the glue that holds it all together. Um, but um, the decoherence issue, and I guess then also, we're, we're now gradually beginning to get evidence, both from biology, from birds and, and um, plants, which apparently use quantum effects, to sustain themselves at a macro scale, which 25 years ago was thought to be completely impossible. And in the human context, we have now a very large literature on quantum game theory, quantum decision theory, quantum cognition, all of which point to very robust quantitative results that suggest that if you model people in, with quantum lenses instead of classical lenses, you predict all the Kahneman Tversky anomalies that psychologists have identified decades ago. Um, so it seems to solve some very significant or explain some very significant anomalies um, for the social scientists have been wrestling with for a long time if you shift your model from a classical model to a quantum one. Can you just tease out uh, the mind-body problem uh, as you understand it and what's commonly referred to these days as the hard problem of consciousness. The mind-body problem is something like, how do we explain mind or conscious experience uh, based on the notion that uh, all things are uh, come from physical causes? And then, and then t explain why consciousness is a hard problem. What, what exactly 
are we talking about uh, in that discourse? Yeah, well, the mind-body problem, of course, has been around for a very long time, and it has different aspects, and, and some of them are more amenable to kind of a standard materialist classical picture than others. Um, in recent years, the idea of the hard problem, which is due to, I believe, David Chalmers, um, that the hard problem is the specific problem of explaining consciousness. And consciousness is here understood as felt experience. So it's an experiential first-person quality, what it's like to be me, what it's like to be you. That's what consciousness is about. And, and I think Chalmers' intervention was extremely important because it highlighted the parts of the mind-body problem are the, that are the most difficult, the most intractable, and therefore I think the most revealing, and as opposed to the more secondary issues that were more easily dealt with in the traditional way. Um, and the problem for, of consciousness for, it's only a problem if your starting point is the materialist worldview, where at the end of the day, everything is made of purely material atoms that have no intrinsic conscious aspect to them. They're not living, they're just dead matter. And the problem of consciousness really is how do you get from a whole bunch of dead matter to an incredibly, not just incredibly complex machine that we are, but a conscious machine, a, a machine that experiences the world uh, when there's no such experience apparently at the, and, at the bottom of the physical world. So it's, it's capturing that first person, the shifting from a third person to a first person vocabulary and how does that actually happen? Um, and it seems to me that you need a completely new worldview to make sense of that, but I'm not the only person arguing that, of course. But. The argument that you put forth in your book is that uh, something going on at the level of the brain, uh, this this observation which causes the collapse of the wave function, that literally is experience. That is conscious experience. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, the intuition, this argument I took from others, um, is that, um, I mean, one of the big questions that the quantum people face is, okay, if we're gonna go quantum, where does consciousness fit in the story? And you'll get disagreement even among the quantum consciousness people um, that I'm aligned myself with. There's disagreement even among them about how this works. The view that I am most attracted to among the different quantum consciousness stories is that it's really that the collapse of the wave function um, produces a, a breaking of symmetry apparently and where half of it goes in a sense, backwards, and that's where the particles go, and that's where the objective reality part goes, the objective description. The particle lands on the screen and so on. The other part is um, consciousness. There's a conscious experience of that. And so every particle that is being measured, on the one hand, is collapsing into a single material object, but at the same time, there's this kind of conscious experiential dimension. Um, and that's not just true in humans, but this would be true everywhere in the universe. Basically, basically consciousness in a sense is everywhere um, in particles at the bottom of the world. Um, and so all of our experience is basically constantly collapsing wave functions wherever we are and wherever we observe. Yes. Although the, the thesis or the theory is that um, at the whole organism level, you have a single wave function for the organism as a whole. Um, but I assume there's collapses going on everywhere inside the body um, because it doesn't require a, hum a, con a, a human observer to make a measurement. These measurements are happening everywhere in, in reality all the time, everywhere. Mm. Okay, well, let's maybe take a little bit of a step back and can you explain why you think materialism cannot explain consciousness? 
Well, they've almost admitted as much themselves. Um, I mean, they've been at it for three centuries since, you know, Newton and everybody past Newton. Um, our best philosophers of mind and human history in the past three centuries. And as far as I can tell, when it comes to explaining consciousness, they haven't made one bit of progress. Um, and it's not just me that's saying that. I think that it's, I think, widely perceived that there's a some kind of fundamental failure here. And my own feeling is that whenever a problem persists that long, there must be something wrong in the assumptions you're making. And in this case, the assumption that I think is wrong is the idea that matter is purely material. Um, and if that assumption is not true, then you might be able to have space for consciousness and everything else in your worldview. And quantum theory gives you that space. There's a natural place in quantum theory for consciousness. There's no place for consciousness in the classical physical worldview. Um, so it's a problem of how do you bolt consciousness or get it into the classical picture. But in the quantum picture, it fits very naturally. Some people describe consciousness as an emergent phenomenon. Uh, can you explain that and maybe uh, the shortcomings of that view? Well, it's emergent for me too, but I would say in a different sense. I think the standard view of emergence is you've got a bunch of material stuff that's going on, and because of very high levels of complexity or densities of interaction or whatever it is, that somehow, poof, a miracle happens and consciousness results. And this, it's always that miracle leap that I think is the problem, and we don't have any understanding of how that happens. So the emergence story, in my view, the traditional emergence story is, is really kind of covering up the fact that we don't actually know what's going on. It's kind of a hand-waving to some extent. Now, the quantum consciousness people who say that consciousness is built into to, uh, matter at the quantum level, it's also an emergence story in a way, except the emergence happens in the collapse of the wave function. So it's not because the system is so complex or so you know densely packed that you get emergence coming out of it. You can get emergence out of a single particle, basically. You get a, a conscious experience of that particle just for a millisecond, in effect. And so it's a different, um, it's a different location for emergence, a different rationale. Um, but it, the word emergence, I think, is still appropriate. So that leads to, as you mentioned, this this notion that consciousness is a fundamental part of reality, um, and that some kind of experience, as we talked about earlier, just uh, consciousness being it, it being it feeling like something to be an entity. Um, in Thomas Nagel's conception of what is it like to be a bat, mm -hmm. um, you think that uh, this isn't just at the level of humans, certainly, and uh, not even just at the level of uh, animals with brains, but maybe pervades all life and perhaps all matter. Describe the, the panpsychist view and how your particular view forms out of that. Well, so you, you mentioned the key word. This is a panpsychist perspective as opposed to a materialist picture. Um, and in the panpsychist story, uh, ideas, so to speak, or consciousness goes all the way down. So in my first book, I said it went almost all the way down. Now I'm saying that it goes all the way down um, through a quantum story. Um, and, you know, it, it does not mean that rocks and glaciers are conscious. That's not the implication of this argument. Um, it is saying that all matter has the potentiality to become conscious in a sense for a second when it gets measured. So, but so certain kinds of matter are living and certain kinds are dead. And the living matter is where the, the quantum state 
the wave function is somehow preserved in the organism. And so in a way, when your wave function collapses, it's not like you die. Luckily, your wave function, your, your, your wave function resurrects itself, so to speak. And then you're kind, of, you're kind of a rolling, collapsing wave function is how I think of human beings and human interaction. Um, but that's not true for rocks and glaciers and other stuff like that that are not alive. So there's a key difference there between living and dead things. But I would say that even the dead stuff, even the rocks, are made up of particles that are just like the particles making us up, which is to say that when they collapse, they have a brief momentary conscious experience. This is a very ancient view, of course. It goes back to the ancient Greeks, if not before. Um, people have argued that Taoism in, in um, Eastern religion, Buddhism to some extent have panpsychist elements. So it's a pretty broadly held view. Indigenous met metaphysics often have a panpsychist quality to them. Um, and, but for most of the 20th century, it was taken to be completely absurd. And the materialists said, this is nonsense. We don't even have to deal with it. But since the mid-90s, panpsychism has had a huge takeoff in terms of, and I think it's because people have realized the materialist argument is not going anywhere. They're just recycling the same lines of argument that have failed to explain consciousness before. And so I think what's happened is people have become more open to a panpsychist perspective um, because it seems to offer a way forward anyway especially if you connect it to a quantum um, viewpoint. So if we stipulate panpsychism in some form, um, is there anything unique about human consciousness? Is there anything unique about the way we experience this versus uh, the rest of uh, life or organisms or matter? No, that's a good question. I guess I would say that... Um, what is unique for humans is um, not just consciousness, but self-consciousness, our ability to kind of reflect on the consciousness that we have. And maybe some other higher organisms can do that, perhaps, um, but probably not many, if, if at all. Um, and so that's a big difference because that's what allows us to create language and do all kinds of other interesting things that other organisms cannot do. But at the end of the day, there's, in my view, a fundamental continuity between us and caterpillars and bacteria. There's just, it's all the same living stuff. It's all conscious. Um, and it's, and I think that view is, is much simpler than the alternative traditional view, which is that, well, consciousness is only a, emerges in higher creatures. And then you've got this problem of, well, how do you explain where that happens and why it happens at that moment and not somewhere else? So the, the panpsychist view is much more continuous. And I think that's a much more elegant kind of approach. I think the materialist approach has the sense that uh, events are determined. Uh, and so that has certain implications for our experience of free will. Mm -hmm. uh, so talk about that and then discuss in contrast how, how your view of things holds free will. Well, a free will issue is something that puzzles me because um, I'm told that, at least in philosophy, most philosophers think that they believe in free will and they believe in materialist determinism and that what's called compatibilist. That these two things are compatible. And I guess I don't understand how that could be. Um, and because at the end of the day, it's all physics and the will is also all physics. And if the physics are classical physics, and that's what the mainstream view is saying, is the brain is just a giant complicated machine. If it's a giant complicated machine, then I don't see where you get a genuine notion of free will there. 
time. You may get a discourse of free will, but physically speaking, I don't see where the freedom is. Now, in the quantum view, free will will be built in. I mean, and this requires some, you know, some leaps of faith, perhaps. But in the quantum view, or at least in my version of the quantum story, um, free will is built into the particle itself. And in a sense, the particle, it's choosing when to collapse. I mean, it may be prompted to collapse by a measurement, but where it collapses, it to some extent is up to the particle itself. So I think I would believe, I'm inclined to believe that will goes all the way down too. So it's, which is, an, and will is an essential characteristic of the human uh, mind. Um, we just call it free. So one way to think about it is that when you look at particles in, in the physics lab, when they collapse, it looks like it's random, but it's only random from the outside. Um, from the inside of a particle, that collapse might be willed. And that's what I would say is happening in the human case too. From the outside, our behavior is probabilistic. It's kind of random, but from the inside, it doesn't feel that way at all. From the inside, it feels like I'm in charge of my behavior. I'm gonna make it happen. And this seems very um, willful, purposeful in that sense. I'm afraid I'm gonna have to ask you to to unpack that a little more, what would it even mean? So maybe we should define what we mean by will or free will, and then um, help me understand how a particle could have it. Well, it's hard. It is hard to kind of imagine what a particle's free will looks like. Um, I think the the inference, the idea here is that will or and free will would not be an emergent property of anything. This would be something that is primitive to organisms in general, maybe to matter. Um, and the only evidence we have that particles have free will is the fact that their behavior, when we measure them, is only probabilistic. We can't you know, predict with any 100% certainty where the particles are going to end up. So that's sort of from the outside, it looks random and probabilistic. But from the inside, you could make the case that if it's will that's there, then there's some kind of choice being made. Now, I don't know what principles particles use to make their choices, and you know, that's well beyond, I figure, what I need to do to do international politics. Um, and we can turn to international politics anytime you want to. Um, but, um, but to me, free will is, at the human level, it's simply the fact that no matter how much coercion and force is brought to bear on, on you or me, um, to do something, at the end of the day, we all have the freedom to just say no. And you can go to a firing squad and you can just see in your mind be saying, just say, I'm just saying no, screw you. And you and you can get executed and all that, but there's an element of freedom in how you face the firing squad. So at every level, when human beings die, they're, they're still in some sense, still expressing their freedom, I think. Can you explain why our experience of free will is not an illusion. I think we probably experience lots of things that only appear that way. They're, they color our experience, but they're not an accurate picture of reality. Why is free will not something like that? I think the burden of proof in that kind of a claim would be on the skeptics. Um, because if you did a poll of most people and you explain to them exactly what you mean by free will, so it has to probably, probably be relatively well-defined, my guess is that almost everybody would say they have it. Um, but that's just a ubiquitous feature of human experience. So if you want to deny that we have free will and that really we're just robots um, or zombies, that might be true. I guess I would want to hear a pretty good argument to that effect. Um, and I haven't heard one so far. Um, 
nor have I heard a, heard a good argument that consciousness is an illusion either. But that's increasingly the, the mainstream view. We brushed up against this when we started talking about brain functions. But uh, the curious thing about the physics of time is that it's uh, symmetrical. So the equations work both forwards and backwards. And so at least by implication, it may be that reality in some sense is not constrained by the way we seem to experience time as a succession of nows mm -hmm. with a definite past and an as yet undetermined future. And you argue that human experience is, quote, temporally non-local. What does that mean? And, and why do you think that that model implies that it's possible to literally change the past? Well, I think that... Um... That's my favorite chapter of the book, actually. <laughs> it's probably the craziest one, too. But, um, you know, the intuition is, and actually, again, if you look at ordinary experience and how we talk about the past and how we talk about history and everything, it is very routine for events in the past to change in light of subsequent events. So somebody shoots somebody, they're only injured. Five hours later, the victim dies. This goes from an assault to a murder charge. Um, and there are many, many situations, you know, the 30 years war became the 30 years war only in 1648 after 30 years of fighting. So there are many kind of retroactive redescriptions of the world that happen throughout history. Now, the question is whether that's significant in any way, or is that just redescribing what happened? Um, and is it, or is it more of an ontological statement? And my view is that um, it's not just redescribing what happened, as if what happened is somehow objectively out there. And we're just trying to describe it in a different way, like the blind men and the elephant. It's more, I think in my view, these things are the past is to some extent open, just as the future is open, because you can change the past to some extent. For example, if you're a, a murderer or something, or you committed lots of crimes as a young person, you can redeem yourself by good works. So what is redemption, if not, in a sense, changing what they did? So yes, what they did in some things, some things can't be changed. Some people, when people die, that can't be changed. Um, but what can be changed is the meaning that's attached to that. And so the meanings are constantly in flux. And I think that's one reason why in politics, you have so much contestation over the past and over memory and collective memories in particular, school textbooks. I mean, why would school textbooks be a source of conflict between Japan and, and China? But it's because memory is a huge factor in how we understand the contemporary situation. Um, now, of course, there are classical theories of memory and so on, and I don't know that literature very well, but from a quantum point of view, these aren't just memories of things that happened. We're actually participating still in finishing the story finishing the narrative of World War II or, or its consequences and so on. Well, at, at the very least, it seems that because you have this notion of these quantum effects happening in the brain, so they're, they're a function of reality too, the past is not a set of events that happened in the physical world outside of us. It happens, uh, we, we help constitute it by our memory of it and by our acting on that memory. Yes, that's right. I would say that, you know, there are certain physical things that can't be changed. You know, people die, you can't resurrect them and stuff like that. Um, but the the uh, discursive dimension of history, the, the um, yeah, I guess discursive dimension is the right way, which is what gives all that history, all those physical events meaning, because without the discourse, there's no meaning. It's just a bunch of stuff happening. Um, the discourse 
changes over time and it's kind of a retrospective discourse. And so it is in a sense when it changes, it may be changing how the past is being described. And in my view, what the past actually is, what actually happened. We're, we're led here, I think, now to the part of the book where you address language. Language, in your view, is kind of like a, a medium for uh, quantum mechanics of the mind to operate, especially in non-local ways, keeping consistent with what, what we observe at the quantum level. Explain uh, this model of linguistic meaning. Well, it's actually, it's interesting because in the mainstream philosophy of language, um, the dominant view is a very holistic view, which says that meaning comes from the community, in effect. The community sets what, what terms mean, what concepts mean, and so on. So that the mainstream view is actually not as individualistic as you, you might expect. Now, my view is that um, the only way to make that argument coherently is with a quantum foundation, um, and that the classical foundation doesn't work for that. So, But I, I guess my point is, initially, that there's a lot of reason already, people who've never even thought about quantum theory already think that meaning is holistic in this way and that language is holistic in this way. Um, so quantum gives you a physical story to back that up. Um, and I think that the way that I think about these things, I mean, I like to use the example of, of Xantippe and his, I mean, no, Socrates and his wife Xantippe. Um, and so when Socrates is forced to drink the hemlock and commit suicide, his wife instantly becomes a widow. Um, now, she doesn't know she's a widow right away. It may take weeks for the news to get to her, but she's already a widow, just by definition, because her connection to Socrates as husband and wife has been severed. Um, and that, to me, is a non-local effect of the linguistic connection between them, the discursive connection between them as husband and wife. And there are many, many examples like this where you change one thing over here, and that changes somebody else immediately over here, even though they don't know about it yet. Okay, let me see if I can review things. Um, we have this problem in physics of not being able to unify uh, what we see in the quantum world and in the classical world. And you're taking what we see in the quantum world and penetrating that through all of reality and you argue that it it doesn't wash out at the macro level. It actually continues operating, that you say humans are walking wave functions. We and everything we experience is a kind of role, constant role of a collapse of the wave function and our uh, associated experience with it. Um, and this goes all the way into our minds and all of our social conventions. So uh, if I've properly restated everything, how does this, um, how should we understand what a state or a government is in this ontology and, and exactly how these structures operate? Well, that's one of the big questions for an IR audience. I think that um, this kind of ontology, I think, uh, unlike my own past work and most work in IR, which is very state centric and states are the, the basic units of analysis. In a quantum perspective, I think individuals are the natural units of analysis because they're the ones that actually have the conscious feelings and experiences. Um, and so a state is is some kind of, um, it's an entangled, it's a structure. It's, a, it's actually a structure rather than an actor. It's a structure that entangles all its members. Um, and that entanglement 
is of, the, of a kind that enables all these people to work together for common purposes, at least if they're on the same page, more or less. Um, and so once everybody's with the program, then everybody does their job and everything can work fine and the state can function and move forward. And a key part of the state in that, in the way this works is in a sense for all the members of, of a society to sort of project into this imaginary space um, this idea, this giant person, the Leviathan in Hobbes' phrase, um, and that that imaginary construction, and then once that's agreed upon as a wave function among all members of society, that's what in a sense creates the reality of a state. But that reality is really just a quantum potentiality. It's really, there's no there there. I mean, it's not like there's no states, but the states are not, their characteristics are not fixed. Um, they can do what they want to do to some extent. Um, so they have a lot of human qualities, um, even though they're a collective um, kind of system. So that's the beginning of it. And I use the analogy of a hologram in the book and that the state is really holographic. And each of us, in a sense, has I mean, the idea of a hologram. A perfect hologram is each pixel encodes the entire whole of the picture in each pixel, unlike a regular picture. Now, in social life, we don't have perfect holograms, but if the state is holographic, then that means that all the people who are in the know, anyway, who know about their state, they are encoding in their own brains all the knowledge of the state that is out there, such that if 99% of the people were, of a country were wiped out in some kind of natural disaster, you could reconstruct the state probably from that 1% from what they remember. Um, so it's the idea that each of us and, that, and the larger point here is that the whole defines the parts rather than the parts defining the whole, which is kind of the traditional story. And, this, and from the holistic perspective, the parts are only parts. For example, you're only a citizen of a country if you fulfill certain kinds of criteria that, this, that are just set at the collective whole level. Um, so the whole idea here is it's more of a top-down than a bottom-up picture, even though individuals are still the foundation of the story. Right. I, I want to see if I can get you to tease that last bit out a little more. In the book, you uh, there, there's a distinction to be made between the individual and the collective. And you talk about how this conception of the, of the state, as you just explained, is uh, sort of manifests or instantiated when people who buy into that social idea act or, or think uh, about it, but that there could be people in that society that don't engage in all mm -hmm. uh, ideationally with that. And so therefore they wouldn't be able to be a part of that, right? Like I say, a homeless person that never uh, watches the news and uh, mm -hmm. never votes and, and so on and so forth. Um, can you expand on that tension between the individual and the collective and, and how that actually works? Yeah, no, I think which the point you've raised is actually a very important one that I haven't thought about as much as I should have probably. But um, in, the, in the picture I laid out in the book, um, it's only the people who are, in a sense, participating in the state's wave function, who are in the know about it and know something about what's going on. They're really the subjects of the story. And, and the rest of us are objects. We're just kind of there as furniture for people who are running the state. Um, and so I think it is partly about knowledge. Um, and I remember reading once, I don't know when, what year this was, but you know, a few decades ago, perhaps, that one third of the population in India had never heard of the United States. 
And that's probably common around the world, actually. Why should everyone hear about the United States? But if you haven't heard about the United States, you probably don't have much sense of the international system. And in a sense, you're not participating in the system. You're really just kind of an object that's going to be pushed around by everybody else. Um, and so becoming a participant is really the crucial thing. And that requires, obviously, education, commitment, and so on. Um, but people can check out, and then they're sort of taking themselves out of that wave function altogether, except as a passive object. Um, okay. Is there any other thing you'd like to talk about with regard to social phenomena or problems and how we should see them or understand them, given your approach? Yeah, I guess I would say, I, mean, I guess I would say two things that I think are really important. One is um, the findings of the quantum decision theory crowd, which are, they're all mathematical psychologists and physicists and stuff. And they're talking about individuals, not groups, that they're showing that individuals, and this is really the whole, the strongest argument for all this crazy pants, all this crazy quantum talk we've been having, the strongest evidence that this is actually relevant at the macro level is from these quantum decision theorists, all of whom actually are not interested in consciousness even. They actually try to, don't want to go near that. Um, but what they have found is that their quantum model predicts human behavior to a T, much better than the classical model does. And it predicts all these anomalies that we've talked about briefly before that we don't have an explanation for. So I think that's hugely, a huge, huge scientific finding that social scientists have not yet really taken on board. A few people have, and the, and the quantum decision theory group is, or crowd is growing. But I think most social scientists have had never even heard of this stuff. They have no clue how it works or anything. So I think that's a, an area where there needs to be a much more work. Now, on the social side, on the collective side, there I would say the important area or the important findings are from quantum game theory. And what's interesting, cool about quantum game theory is that what, what it is basically is it's just like regular game theory, except the players are quantized, the strategies are quantized, everything is quantized, which kind of opens things up a lot. And what the quantum game theory literature has proven mathematically is that cooperation in a prisoner's dilemma, for example, if it's a quantum PD, is easier than cooperation in a classical PD. And this is true for all mixed motive games, apparently. Um, or at least that's my understanding. So the quantum worldview, if you're thinking about game theory as kind of a metaphor for um, the, a kind of a worldview overall, a quantum game theoretic worldview is a more cooperative worldview its default setting, in a way, is a more cooperative worldview than the classical one, where the default setting is Hobbes and the state of nature. I mean, that's where the classical materialist individualist picture starts us at, is in Hobbes's nasty, brutish, and short, you know, life in, in the state of nature. A quantum state of nature, somebody should write an article about this, you know, the state of nature from a quantum perspective, I think would be a much more intrinsically cooperative, not always cooperative, because it's probabilistic, but much more cooperative starting point for building um, society, for thinking about institutions, thinking about law. You know, it's just a different picture of human beings that's less cynical, less negative. Um, it maybe speaks to the better angels of our nature rather than the, the devils in our nature. I'm not sure what the metaphor there is, but um, I think it, it does provide this more optimistic worldview, I think, that our co cooperation is easier than we think it is. I wonder if we can uh, unpack a little bit of that as well. I think th those that work uh, engages in mathematics, which I don't understand, to demonstrate that uh, this cooperation that you're talking about is, is possible. 
does that bear out when we engage in human level experiments in psychology and so on? Does that level of cooperation matter? Well, my understanding is that um, for some time now, experimental game theorists and psychologists have found that in prison dilemma, for example, people cooperate more than they should consistently. Um, and um, now I know that the quantum game theory literature has remained almost completely mathematical so far, and they haven't really gotten their hands dirty with empirics. But the experimental game theorists have found these findings. My prediction is that if, if you actually quantize those findings and quantize the games that are producing them, you'll get a perfect match, just like we did with quantum decision theory. So I think this is, you know, behavioral economics would be the place where this would happen, basically. And in behavioral economics, we have lots of results that don't fit, they don't fit a classical picture. My guess is if you quantize everything, those problems will disappear. Um, and if they did, that would be, again, a gigantic intellectual triumph, I would say. And it would be decisive evidence, I think, for that this quantum perspective actually has purchase on the real world. Do you want to speculate on any other work that is either being done or could be done that would um, sort of uh, add credence uh, to your, your idea? Well, I think outside of social science, I think quantum biology is a very interesting domain because you're, if you're seeing quantum effects in you know, plants and birds, it's, it would be odd to think that in evolution, those kinds of capacities would be selected out. If anything, they'd be selected for because they enhance your survival prospects. So um, if birds can do it and if plants can do it, I would think humans can do it too. But I'm very interested in what the quantum biologists find. And that's just that literature is just really beginning to get rolling now. Um, and there's, again, disagreement. I mean, one of the funny things about the quantum community is everyone disagrees with each other because no one knows how to interpret quantum theory. And so it's all speculation in a sense. Um, but there are these hard scientific results that we nonetheless get. And I think they make a big difference. And this is the argument of this paper that I've just recently trying, I'm trying to get it published. It's still just a manuscript. I think it matters to society whether we see ourselves as classical machines or as quantum ones. Um, if we're quantum beings, we're way more powerful, have way more agency and way more freedom and way more capacity to affect life non-locally than we do if we're classical machines where we're just a bunch of robots. Um, so I think if we empower ourselves by, and for two centuries now, we've been teaching ourselves that we're classical machines. I think that's, we've been teaching ourselves a completely wrongheaded ontology, which is gonna, it produces a truncated, alienated subject who doesn't know how to cooperate very well. And so what we need to do is to teach people that they're quantum beings instead, and then everything will be hunky-dory. Maybe not quite, but I mean, that's the idea and we're the hope. So, uh... Normally on this show, we discuss matters of U.S. foreign policy mm -hmm. and Cato, the Cato Institute, as, as most think tanks, uh, are really about trying to influence policy making in the most constructive way possible. Um, and, you know, I have a mixture of policy folks and academics on this uh, podcast. And usually if we talk at the academic level, the scope kind of pans out a little bit for what policymakers ought to be doing on this, that, or the other issue. And here, of course, the scope is even farther out and more abstract and by necessity at this point, at least, um, to some extent, 
speculative. Mm -hmm. But if you can talk to this audience about what's relevant about your book to policymaking and policymakers, uh, that would be helpful. Yeah, no, I think that's that's an excellent question. And actually, one of my PhD students is I'm going to riff on his dissertation. His name is Tom Chen. And it's a very, very interesting dissertation, which I think perfectly captures the value added of a quantum perspective for an IR kind of audience. And the, the challenge that, that Tom has set himself is to intervene in the whole debate in the West about Chinese intentions. What are China's intentions, right? And of course, that makes a huge difference for our policies and the future going forward. And the assumption of that whole literature is that China actually has certain intentions that are well-defined and they're determinate and so on. They're just like any other classical property. They actually have these intentions. And from a quantum perspective, there's no reason to assume that they actually have well-defined determinate intentions. What they have is a probabilistic wave function of intentions. Um, they're in superposition. Superposition. And that means that instead of interacting with something that you can't really change, our measurements of China will be constantly changing them, and their measurements of us are constantly changing us because we're actually entangled. We're actually a single mind, really. It's one country, in a way, deeply, intimately involved with each other now and extraordinarily sensitive to each other's actions. Um, and in that sense, we're not dealing with a fixed other that's out there that's out to get us or not out to get us. We're dealing with an other that we have some influence over what they become, just like they have some influence over us and what we become. So I think from the bottom line is that if you start thinking, I mean, IR is so much about, you know, determining the intentions of other states and you, you don't want to get that wrong because if you get it wrong, you're going to get slaughtered and so on. But if they don't have intentions, it's a rather different problem. And I think a much more open ended picture of the world system than the traditional picture is where everyone has got these certain characteristics and they're just kind of running around like a bunch of robots. I'm trying to get somebody to do this. It occurred to me that deterrence theory is sitting around waiting to be quantized. Someone should quantize all the assumptions of deterrence theory, the different games that deterrence theorists use, quantize shelling, and see what deterrence theory looks like then. I think it would be different than the traditional deterrence theory model. Um, I think that would be a great dissertation and, and it would be a great book and it could make a huge impact actually on strategic nuclear policy, potentially anyway. Um, so, Well, that's very useful. And I, you know, your work, uh, I think this was true with your first book and it'll be true with this one is that it, it suggests a lot of other additional research that people could do and it has that kind of value as well anyways uh alex really i really appreciate you taking the time well, thank you thanks a lot for having me so it was fun